Greetings, Grapple fans. It is 50 deep now. We, If we were in the Cricket World Cup, we'd be making a little acknowledgement to the crowd, but not getting too showy-offy till the full century arrives. But we think that's a pretty good point in this Let Me Tell You Something series of the Meltzer Five Star Project, where myself, Lorcan Mullen, and my co-host... Simon Cross. ...have been watching every match that Dave Meltzer has rated five stars or higher. And every ten episodes... We do this little debrief where we compare notes, make lists, answer a question, talk about a m- match that isn't on the list, and that then see where we, and then go back right onto the horse again. This is like our little um, this is our pit stop, as it were. Yes, our little like, alcove on the mountain of five star that we are ascending. Have you seen that? Like uh, they're having to, they're worried about how many people are now trying to climb Mount Everest, basically for the Instagram likes. Uh, yes, uh, basically, it's a massive problem where people are too now because it's so crowded, there's getting t- up and getting down. You on the peak. Uh, yeah, and it's leading to um, people spending too long in what's known as the death zone, where el- um, the air is too thin, even with oxygen, to survive. But if you're going up there for the Instagram likes, I'm just saying maybe. For the good of society, you know. <laughs> you, what are you saying? It's gene pool strength. I'm just saying, if Thanos had thought through more how which of the half he was getting rid of, maybe we wouldn't have been so upset. <laughs> I'm telling. We had this conversation um, on one I of our chats. I don't mean that. I get it. I get the big argument that everyone always says about Thanos. Instead of snapping to wipe out half of civilization, why didn't he snap his fingers to double? you know, available resources. resources. He's cut he's cut his heart his glass half empty. Well basically he want, you know, he's a he's a maniac that wanted an excuse to kill as many people as he could kill. And that's how yeah. he came up with it. You know, save your think pieces for another time. But talking we're gonna ignore the think pieces that are clogging up the internet. Instead we're gonna do it with the other thing that's clogging up the internet. Lists, lists, lists <laughs> as we both provide our personal top tens of the 50 matches that we've watched so far. Uh, give or take a couple of missed ones here and there. And then we are going to come back round and look at our definitive shared five. See if there's some way that we can haggle, barter, diplomatically agree to disagree and then agree on that disagreement. And find a definitive five for you people that don't want to go through all the hard work that we have. You just want the easy Sherpa-led route to the top. <laughs> We're free soloing it. Have you seen free solo? No. Oh, man. I saw it in an IMAX cinema. Oh, God. Anyway. Let's start this mountainous climb by first talking about our previous debrief top ten and definitive five. I'll go first. My top 10 the last time we did it, up to match 40, were Kenta Kabashi facing off against Steve Williams uh, in 1993. 
1993. Then I followed it up with the second Ric Flair versus Barry Windham match, which took place in 1987 for Worldwide Wrestling in April. Then I had the third match in the Rick, Fl- no, the second match in the Ric Flair Ricky Steamboat quadrilogy that we watched, which was the Fan Cam House Show match in Landover, Maryland. Then at number seven was the first of my five star matches that I agreed with Dave on the rating, which was Mitsuhara Masawa solidifying making a star out of himself in one night as he faced off against Jumbo Saruta in June of 1990. At number six, I had my only Joshi female wrestling match on the list, as it was the two out of three falls Dream Slam 2 interpromotional clash between Manami Toyota and Toshio Yamada of 3WA, of, um, sorry, of AJW, defending their 3WA tag titles against the JWP team of Dynamite Kanzai and Mayumi Ozaki. That was in April of 93. April's a good month for wrestling by the looks of it. My number five, going into the top five, was another Kenta Kabashi singles match that took place only a month or so before the Steve Williams match, where he faced off against the Lariat, Stan Hansen, the big boss of the All Japan ranking system. Then, at number four, I went with the third Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat match of their 89 series. It was the two out of three falls, 50-minute-plus classic at Clash of the Champions 6 in New Orleans, Louisiana. At number three, Kenta Kabashi's back there again, and this time he's teaming up with his little scrappy-doo buddy, Soyoshi Kikuchi, attempting to take the all-Asia tag team titles away from the Can-Am connection of Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. And that was in 1992, May of 1992. At number two, I had one of the three matches between the Super Generation Army of Mitsuhara Masawa, Toshiaki Kawada, and that man again, Kenta Kabashi, facing off against Jumbo Saruta, Akira Tawe, and Masanobu the Shithouse Fushi. I went for the second of those matches, the one that was in April, yet again, of 1991. But my number one match of the list at match 40 remained what it was from match 20 and match 30. And it was Ric Flair winning the title from Ricky Steamboat in the final match of their classic 1989 series at WrestleWar 89. Often cited as the greatest wrestling match of all time. Simon, what was your top 10 for match 40? <clears throat> Uh, Okie doke. I don't have months. Um, She'll just have to use the power of your knowledge to uh, memory, rather, to remember when these were. Uh, At number 10, I have Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody versus Dory and Terry Funk. At Dory Funk Jr., of course, just to make it clear for everyone. Uh, At number 9, I. 1994, that one. Only the third match of the list. I like what I like. It was resilient. It stayed strong. At number nine, I have the uh, Super Generation Army against Jumbo's. Uh, which one's Jumbo's yeah, Jumbo? Yeah. Jumbo's Army. I have their first incarnation. That was the match that took place in October of nineteen ninety. Yep. And then I have the fourth in at number eight i have the fourth in their series but what we refer to as the third because it's the third five star one um same again super generation versus jumbo that sticking one. with the theme yep and that one was in 1990 
two in May of 1992. At number seven, I have our second five-star Ric Flair versus Barry Windham match. That was in 1988. Uh, and then I have Kenta Kabashi versus... Oh, 1997, sorry, I apologise. That's all right. At number six, I have Kenta Kabashi versus Dr. Death, Steve Williams. My number 10, your number six, August 1993. At number five, I have the third outing between Ric Flair and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. My number four, your number five, Clash of the Champions 6, April 1989. At number four, another Another shared love of ours. I have Kabashi and Kikuchi versus the Can-Am Express. May 1992. It was either the Connection or the Express. One of the two is right and the other one is Rick Martel and Tom Zink. Apologies to the really Aspergery nerds out there that are even worse than I am. <laughs> At number three, I have Lorcan's number one, uh, Ric Flair versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, the fourth outing. Four also for the number of horsemen in, in his stable. Okay, mm. um, so you're wondering what was different. At number two, I have... Um, Misaharu Misawa and Kenta Kabashi versus Kawada and Akira Tawe, their 12th of March 1993 tag team outing. Mm-hmm. At number one, I have um, the Remainer from um, our third debrief after 30. Oh, it wasn't the 12th of March, by the way, it was the 3rd of December. Ah, shit, House of Yank. <laughs> Anywho. At number one, I have the Super Generation Army versus Jumbo's Army, their second outing. Well done. So, we won't go over those again, but then we'll make our definitive five, which was the our five matches that were our mutuals in our top tens. Number five was my number ten, Simon's number six, Kent Kabashi against Steve Williams, August 1992. Our number four is... The Flair Steamboat 2 out of 3 falls match at Clash of the Champions 6. Our number 3, mutual number 3, is Kenta Kabashi and Tsuyoshi Kikuchi against Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. After much toing and froing the first time that the match was in dispute, we went with Masawa Kawada and Kobashi against Saru, Tatawi and Fushi from 1991 as the number 2 match on our list. And at number 1 of our definitive 5 was Flair versus Steamboat at WrestleWar 89. My number 1, Simon's number 3. Let's see what's happened in the time in between. First, I'll reel off quickly what 10 matches we watched after that was done and before this one started. First, we watched the first WWF match to be given the full five stars from Dave Meltzer as Shawn Michaels tried to claim the undisputed Intercontinental Championship title against the other Intercontinental Champion of the time, Razor Ramon, in a ladder match at WrestleMania 10. Arguably one of the most artistically influential matches in wrestling history. Our next match was a very contentious one between the two of us. It was the final of the Super J Cup as Wild Pegasus, a.k.a. Chris Benoit, faced Michinoku Pro's shining star and Simon's least favourite wrestler in the world, the great Sasuke. Not in the world. (laughs) I just didn't care for what I saw. Just in Japan. (laughs) Uh, number, uh, You're forgetting 40- the UWF match. Yes, our 43rd match 
was Mitsuhara Misawa and Ken Takabashi facing off yet again against Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawe in May of 1994. That one we only saw in highlighted form, but in a bit of fortuitous news that might change things in the future, we have been locate we have located a link to a full version of that match. So expect at some point in the near future a revised episode where we talk about that match. Maybe we could do it for the 54th match, which is also Misawa Kabashi against Kawada and Tawe. Just talk about both of them and do a cross-comparison, perhaps. We'll, we'll cross-average when we come to it. We could re-rewind when the crowd say bow. Selector. Mm, mm. The 45th match on the list was Jushin Liger against the Great Sasuke, which is unfortunately... Stop laughing, I'm not going to sell it. Um, number... <laughs> um, <laughs> that was, you did now. <laughs> that was between Jushin Liger and the Great Sasuke... I don't know if it was Simon that burnt all copies of that match to the ground, but it is not available for our consumption. So apologies for that. But then we were able to watch a match, and it was another WWF match, as Bret Hart against Owen Hart was fought in a steel cage at SummerSlam 94. Our next match on that list was another Joshi match at the Tokyo Dome as Aja Kong defended her 3WA Singles Championship against Manami Toyota. Then we were back in AAA for the first time since match th- in the 30s, at, uh, not the 1930s, in the 30s <laughs> of our series of matches, as El Hijo del Santo and Octagon faced off against Los Gringos Locos of Love Machine Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero, the late great Eddie Guerrero, our bar is late as well, but maybe not as great. Um, we'll, you know, we talk about that in the episode a bit. Um, in a hair versus mask match, hair versus mask. Then we had a couple of Masawa Kabashi tag matches to end our run of ten. As in the first one, they faced off against Toshiki Kawada and Akira Tawe on the twenty fourth of January, nineteen ninety five. Followed up by another match a few months later, April of ninety five, where they faced. Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and John Ace, a.k.a. John Laurinaitis, the man who's behind people power. What a funny world wrestling is. But Simon, <laughs> let's get on with our lists. On, that, on those ten, I gave two of those matches five stars, so there will be changes to my list. I now have nine matches in total that I have given five stars in this series. So there is only one match left on that list that has not been given the full Monty from me. So it's basically the best of the rest, as it were. How about yourself, Simon? Uh, I also have two new entrants. Um, I wager, I think, we have not um, conferred about this, but I would wager we probably have the same two new entrants. I may be wrong. Potentially. Let's go 10 to 9 to 8 and so forth. Simon, what is your number 10? My number 10 is Jumbo and Jumbo's Army versus the Super Generation Army Incarnation number 2. Which means for Wait, how No, that can't be right cuz that's the one that's uh, Oh, Incarnation in no, no, no. Sorry, let me go again. Cuz that'd be I... a hell of a drop from your number 1 to your... <laughs> I wrote it down wrong. Oh, Kelsa bloody prees. Fuck off, it's a number, it's not an entire fucking match. Piss off, flower. Don't be such a snowflake. Continue. Uh, Coming in at my number 10, it's uh, the 
Jumbo's Army versus the Super Generation Army. Match number three, which obviously number four in the series, but the number three out of the five-star ones, which means for the first time since all three of them have been in a list, one of those matches has dropped out of my list, which is quite a big deal for me considering how much, how much I love them. Yeah. Uh, my number 10 is the only one that's not been rated five stars for myself, and it is the house show fan cam footage version of Ric Flair trying to wrestle the NWA World Heavyweight title, his beloved prize, away from the recently acquired champion Ricky the Dragon Steamboat in a house show match. Uh, that was my number 10, making a fall of two places. That meaning that my number 9, Flair Wyndham 2, and my number 10, our mutual number 5, Kabashi Williams, are no longer on my list. It's going to be hard to keep that in the mutual list then by the sounds yeah. of things. Speaking of, um, one of your droppees out of the list, mm. Flair Wyndham 2, that is actually my now number 9, mm. having fallen two places itself. Well, my number 9 is my first 5-star match of this series. Uh, not the first one that I gave 5 stars, just the first 5-star match in the list. That is Mitsuhara Masawa's triumphant... Um, debut in the main event of sorts in the uh, against Jumbo Saruta from June of 1990. Another one of the matches that you can make the case is maybe the most important in modern wrestling. My number eight is another one which has departed your list. It is um, Kenta Kabashi against Dr. Death Steve Williams. Our mutual number five. It may not be for that list much longer. My number eight is my previous number six. It's the Joshi match, Dynamite Kanzai and Mayumi Ozaki against Toshio Yamada and Manami Toyota at Dream Slam 2. My number seven and the first new entrant is uh, Mitsuharu Masawa and Kenta Kabashi's match against Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawe on the 24th of January 1995. So at number seven, my first new entrant. My number seven is my previous number five. It's Kent Kabashi against Stan Hansen. My number six is my previous number five. Rick Flair versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, their third outing. The Clash of the Champions, Matt. Clash of the Champions one, yes. So that's six, yes? Yes. That's your number six. My number six is why first of my two new entries. It's Razor Ramon, Shawn Michaels, WrestleMania 10. Not quite sneaking into the top five. Okay. My number five. Um, another faller. It is Kabashi and Kikuchi versus Furnace and Crawford. My number five is your number six. Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat at Clash of the Champions 6. My number four is your previous, maybe still, number one, Flair versus Steamboat 4. That's WrestleWar 89. That is WrestleWar 89. My number four is your number five. It's Kent Kabashi and Soyoshi Kikuchi against Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. My number three is an earlier version of my first new entrant. It is Masawa and Kabashi versus Kawada and Tawe there, 3rd of December 1993 outing. Real World Tag League Final. World's Strongest Tag League Final. Whatever it's called. 
My number three is my previous number two. And it will be either your one or your two. I don't know yet. It's Mitsuhara Masawa, Toshiaki Kawada, and Kent Kabashi facing off against Jumbo's army of Jumbo Saruta, Akira Tawe, Masanobu Fushi in 1991. This is where things get interesting. You have a new entry. You have a previous number one. Just so people know, what is your previous number one? It is what I just said as my number three. My number one after 40 matches is your number three, which is the New Generation Army versus Jumbo's Army. What's uh, your Aaron... number two, Simon? My number two after 50 matches is that very same match. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. So my number three is your number two. But my number two is your number four. And that's Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat at WrestleWar 89. So it looks like there is a brand new number one. And it will take six stars in the sky to spell out... I don't know. I'm stopping right now. Uh, It's the match that not only did Dave Meltzer think was worth five stars, he thought it was worth six stars. So essentially he's saying at that point... It was arguably the greatest match of its time. Some people argue it is the greatest match of all time, and it looks like it is our mutual number one. Let's Just to say, confirm that that is the case. That is my number one match. My number one match is Mitsuhara Masawa defending his All Japan Triple Crown Championship against Toshiaki Kawada on the 3rd of June, 1994. What do you think it is about that that made... What is it that made that overturn your match? And then I'll say what made it overturn my Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat match. Your match previously being the six-man tag, involving both of those men, but on the same team. Yes. Um, it's just stayed with me ever since we've. I sat down and watched it. It. It just a, it's a beacon of how good wrestling can be, and especially when some of the stuff I'm seeing on a weekly basis for the last few months on Monday Night Raw is utter garbage, both in-ring and out-of-ring. Um, th- 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 it's just there. It's just raised my expectations of what I should want from professional wrestling. It's on a different level. Yes. It has, it has a different level of aspiration. I think the ambition of the scope of the of the match, and it's not just long for the sake of being long, like we've well, like there's been a criticism for some other matches in the past and probably some more matches in the future... Um, it's 40 minutes and it feels like it's worth every one of those 40 minutes and those 40 minutes go by like nothing. Yeah. Everything works. Everything is calculated. Everything has a... Every move has a... I don't recall any kind of botch or any kind of screw up. I might be wrong. But it doesn't matter because I don't remember it because it wasn't that important. Both men convey so much story, so much... There's a sense of chemistry between them how important this is. Mm. The obviously Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat have, but there's more of a performative nature to it. I suppose it's it's the, it's why I prefer Bret Hart to Shawn Michaels. It's kind of why I prefer this match to Flair and Steamboat. Because Flair and Steamboat has the sequences. It has the repetition. Now, of course, there's the repetition of forearms, back kicks, R- Misawa doing his fake out, flip over the ropes when he's doing a, uh, about to do a suicide dive and everything. But it, it works within the context of it feeling more like a, a, a match, a progression, a fight, something that's happening naturally in that moment. You can, you know, with Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat, they do the, like the best sequences ever 
but they're sequences. You can feel like they could say number three and then they do that. I don't think Masara and Kawada have a number three. They just have their... They don't have a, you know, spot number six and do that with spot number four. They have their... Organic chemistry. Organic, yeah. It just works. And, you know, these were guys that knew each other from childhood. And the, 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 the palpable sense of how important it is to Kawada to beat Masawa and how Masawa is this beacon of, of greatness. That he is like this, you know, almost mythical hero. And, he's, um, and, he, and, and that they don't... I mean, Kawada is very expressive. Masawa less so. But that again, almost fits with the characters. Like, the one that's too hot-tempered, hot-headed, and emotional, ultimately gets defeated by the one who's... I mean, it's not that he doesn't show emotion at various points, but he's got more self-control and more precision to the way that he wrestles. And, quite simply, one of the reasons that this match is as superb as it is, is the match itself tells you all that. We have the benefit, and so did the fans at the time, of watching previous matches between the two, knowing the story of how they grew up together. You wouldn't need to know that watching to go into this match. It's all conveyed through what they do, how they respond to each other. I don't think you necessarily get other. like the childhood friend element to it. Not, well, maybe not like to the, that level. The sense of them being eternal rivals. Yes, yeah. Okay, maybe not them being childhood friends, but the fact that they they know each other so deeply and there is a level of resentment there beyond just being simply two competitors. Do you get where I'm coming from? Yeah, absolutely. It's layered and it's it's easily accessible layers, which Mm. is the hard thing to do in wrestling storytelling, but the most important thing to do Wrestling is like a job interview. Okay. You've got to... Uh, you may even not get th- this application for theory, for um, metaphor. Let's see how it goes. <clears throat> you've got to, you've got to convey all your skills, all your abilities, your past, and how it will benefit a company. Um, in the same way that when you're wrestling in a ring, you've got to... It's your chance to showcase your skills, move up to the next level, tell well, your that story. Makes, that, that makes it but, sound quite selfish. It's not like but, that at all. But you always have to treat it, despite the fact there may be context, and you may know, you may be able to explain what it is that your company does, but you may use that jargon to do it, and it may get lost in translation as a result because you're relying on them having prior knowledge. Mm. So much in the same way that you have to treat all job interviews, even if it's like internal within your company, like they know nothing about what you do and convey it in basic language, you also have to intersperse that with little bits that show just how good you are and it's Mm. in the same way that those two wrestlers have to good wrestlers have good wrestling storytelling has to approach it like no they don't people don't know what the story is Mm. but through their actions they have to link back to the story they have created for those who have followed the path do you see what i'm saying sort of i don't know it's 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 a very tortured analogy but yes uh, yeah, um, uh, I'm sure some will agree, and I'm not saying that there's not something to that. I don't know that there's a one-to-one correlation. Um, I, I just I feel like you have from. to I get where you're coming from. Cater just as much to the people that have followed your journey through as just as much as to the people who 
are joining your journey at this point because if you don't cater to both you a you don't create new fans and b you lose the fans you've had it's a very tight rope to walk yeah. and they do this expert they they walk it so so well it'll be interesting to see if this can be uh usurped i think uh, obviously didn't uh dave Meltzer didn't feel the need to go five stars for a match for another 20 plus years six stars uh six stars sorry what did i say five <laughs> five well, to be fair, he, he almost went that long for for a period. Uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, as it were. If you're playing wrestling, uh, let me tell you something. Bingo, there's one for you. Um, but now we've got to make our definitive five. Fortunately, all of my top five are in your top six. Okie doke. So okay. we do have five that can work. And it's basically where we were before. But with now Masawa Kawada at number one. Yeah. So I think it's pretty simple. Number five, Flair Steamboat at Clash of the Champions 6. Number four, my number four, your number five, Kent Kabashi and Soyoshi Kikuchi against Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. Number three, my number three, your number two, Mitsuhara Masawa and Toshiaka Kawada and Kent Kabashi facing Jumbo's Army in April 1991, Jumbo Saruta, Akira Tawe, Masanobu Fushi. Number two, would be your number four, my number two, Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. Now, I know you're obviously doing maths at home. Why is Simon's three and two, why is two and three below two and four? Well, we made that agreement ahead of time that Flair and Steamboat would go above. We can't change it now because of maths. It's just, yeah. it, you know, that hasn't changed. That was our mutual agreement. But That's what we one, had mutually as number one last time. Yeah, so, yeah. you know. So, at number one, it's there. Will it stay there? Misawa Kawada, nineteen ninety four, the six star match, the original. Well, that was quite a journey. I, 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 Were you, I, I don't you like to uh, to go for that at number one. Yes, um, I'm very sure. I I don't know why. I just had a feeling you would go and put in the uh, my other new entrant rather than the uh, Michael's remote match. But I entirely understand knowing the way. Well, I gave that one five stars. Yeah, so. knowing knowing the lens that you view things through, mm. I entirely understand why you would have put Michael's Ramon in your top mm. ten. So I'm not mad at it. Okay, so at this point, is uh, is it our alternate five star or is it our Q and A section? Ooh, uh, shall we do our alternate five star? Very very first? well. What we, sh- what we do in these instances is we take a match that is around the period of time that we end our top 10, uh, we end our 10 episode block, and it's a match that maybe Dave Meltzer rated high, but he didn't rate it quite high enough. And we ask, did he go wrong? Why didn't he give it five stars? What would we, would we go above his head? Which we did in our previous two, which were a Bret Hart medley, a Bret Hart brace of Davey Boy Smith at SummerSlam 92. That was our debrief number three. And in our fourth debrief, it was Bret against Owen at WrestleMania 10. But there is not a Bret Hart to be seen. And we're in a brand new promotion this time. Never yes. before involved. Simon, let the people know what we're talking about. So one of the faces um, we've seen before in Rey Mysterio, uh, we are off to ECW uh, to a televised episode um, filmed October 10th, 1995. Uh, went out October 17th. 1995 uh i might have that out by a few days but you get the point 
It's Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Psychosis. Two out of three falls. Mm. Another staple of Lucha Libre, but not as confusing as tag team two out of three falls matches. No. So, this is an interesting one. This is where... The thing that ECW always wanted to paint itself as was it was the first, like, smark-friendly kind of wrestling. But this is the smark not of the forums... Well, there are some now at this point, but not of the forums and the and the Twitter sphere, obviously. This is the this is essentially the earliest that you know, this is the version of AEW of its time in that regards, that it builds this cult following through its tape trading cultures, really, and, and, and yeah. dirt sheets of the wrestling observer. It's fair to say a fair number of the people in this crowd are probably observer subscribers. And that was reflected with these wrestlers that they were bringing from Japan. They'd Obviously had these big successes with Dimalenko and Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. Subsequent to that, Chris Jericho. And this was the next wave of wrestlers that made a splash first in ECW before getting signed up for WCW. And this was the ones where Conan was bringing in all these luchadors. And the big match everyone wanted in Mexico, the match everyone wanted in Japan, the match everyone wanted in America was Rey Mysterio Jr. against Psychosis. And... It was innovative for its time. Basically, you know, Rey Mysterio... Someone described the match that they had uh, at the second Super J Cup, which was like an exhibition match in between the semifinals and the final, of right. Rey Mysterio finding how many different ways he can do a hurricane rock. <laughs> and you get some of that in this match. But what I think yes. was interesting was that they ECWized their match. Because mm. there are dives, there are hurricane runners, but there are also... Steel chairs being thrown quite viciously. There the are table, table spot. spots. You know, the, the finishes uh, involve, often do involve, uh, well, the, the very final finish involves a uh, 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 twisting uh, somersault sent on onto a chair. chair onto of, the uh, victim. Kind of, yeah. Um, this is another one of those ones where it's like, in and of its moment, it's groundbreaking but yeah. for what we're looking for there's no real sense of a, a an a, an emotionally connecting story no it is ray does moves psychosis does moves ray does moves psychosis does moves and there's no big babyface comeback or anything like that from ray mysterio when we uh looked at our first triple a match in this list um, we had pretty similar um, conclusions. The question I wanted to ask you after watching this is, do you think, how far do you think this bridged the gap between all-out lucha and Americanization of what would be a burgeoning cruiserweight stroke lucha style? Like, when you look at, say, uh, WCW's Cruiserweight League, like, a year or two later, how far along the spectrum do you think this match is? Well, I think it's a bit of a, a deviation that when they go to WCW, then they go back to more of their AAA, as I would understand it, because they don't then use the chairs and the tables. And gradually they get integrated, but for the most part, the, the Cruiserweight sort, was sort of kept to their own, and mm. Rey Mysterio just had to wrestle Psychosis at first and Dean Malenko, who could adapt and adjust to Rey Mysterio's style. Um, Juventud Guerrero, Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero. They didn't really have to deal with Hulk Hogan. 
or Randy Savage yeah. or the Giant. They, they would eventually when Rey Mysterio was involved in certain storylines, but they were really kept onto themselves. And it's like Chris Jericho said, he wasn't really re-educated in anything in WCW until he went to the WWF and realized that there's a certain way that they like to do things with bump and feed and selling and all, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I think it's it's this is more of an aberration, and the clear through line is from the Lucha Libre stuff to WCW. Okay, like I said, this was them sort of dipping their toe into a different world and catering to that ECW world with the chairs and the. There's a very interesting point where I wondered how much of it was shoot. Where I think Psychosis dives on Ray on the outside, yeah, and Ray kicks at him. And they just start kicking each other like two brothers on the in the back of a car on a long drive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they just wanted to put that scrappiness in because there's, yeah. there's a little bit of like ferocity. Some of the chair shots, uh, they throw the chair rather there's than hatred. swing it. There's hatred in this. You know, yeah. That they've been wrestling, as Joey Styles says in commentary, that they've been wrestling each other for like six years at this point or something. So since Ray's like 15 and Psychosis yeah. was probably 17. It's interesting as well, Psychosis, how... He was a part of this match that everyone wanted, yet it was Rey Mysterio that, you know, from 97 onwards sort of outgrew Psychosis. Yeah. They wrestled each other on Bash at the Beach 96, one of the great opening matches, I think, of pay-per-view history. Many people have argued, at least in that time, there's been many pay-per-views since then. But Rey always beat Psychosis in WCW, basically, and Psychosis just became a mid-guard act. I think they just... Saw the marketability, I guess. I don't. I. I don't know what psychosis's English was like at this time, but I guess Ray's well, might yeah, have been psychosis better. Psychosis is genuinely Mexican, whereas I think you know Ray grew up in California. For oh, I was on about like linguistically, but <laughs> well, Ray Romero can obviously speak English. Yeah, and and psychosis it was not his native language. Um, it's probably again why Ray and Eddie were able to be stars, whereas psychosis and others less so and Juventud Guerrero who had decent English was sort of like the bridge in between the two Yeah, um, I'm not going to give this five stars uh, it's too scrappy it's too there's no there's no emotional it's an exhibition that yeah. is what, and that's what they were doing they were putting on a show to all the different towns and countries around the world at this point it's good arcadey fun but it's not good wrestling uh, no 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 no, no. it's on. not fight sorry it's not five star wrestling to in the standard opinion. in our eyes, and I wouldn't say it's four and three quarter star wrestling, which is what Dave Meltzer rated it. <laughs> but again, it's one of those things. In '95, I can imagine this being jaw dropping to people who hadn't seen it. Was, you know, you got to realize in 1995, you're getting Diesel against uh, King Mabel and, and Psycho Sid at this point, and in WCW, it's Hulk Hogan against the Dungeon of Doom. And you so, notice that both those names are quite absent from the five-star list around this time. Something like this involving smaller guys in their early 20s who can just do stuff physically that you can't, you know... It was unheard of almost. Like, some of like Mysterio does a, a flip sent onto the outside and lands on Psychosis in sort of a Hurricane Rana position. I imagine they probably wanted to try and do it as a Hurricane Rana, but with that thing, you just the weight really just takes you over half yeah. the time. It's very hard to do. Um, but it's still. I, would you tell people to watch it? I would say watch their WCW stuff before I'd say watch their ECW stuff. Personally, it's interesting, but it's not. Having not, not seen a lot, it's, it's them kind of not degrading themselves, but them <clears throat> going out of their element to appeal to that audience, which is admirable. But I don't think it's necessarily something that someone's like into wrestling 
Just pure wrestling. I don't think a lot of ECW's aged very well. No. Um, nor does it have to. Wrestling doesn't have to age well. It's just in its It's moment. a contemporary art form. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd tell people if they wanted to see something fun, to, to that's something you can put on. But in terms of, like, uh, without wanting to sound like I'm just viewing um, New Mooch number one for roast-tinted uh, roast glasses, if I wanted to show someone what good storytelling wrestling is... I'd point them more towards uh, Kawada Misawa. Mm. Okay. So that was our alternate five-star match. Not this time, I'm afraid. Are we going to give that one the five stars? Uh, Unlike Sean, uh, Brett Owen, Brett Smith, and for me, the other two as well, Chono Muto at the G1 Climax and uh, Tully Blanchard against Magnum TA at Starcade. Simon, ever the awkward bugger, (laughs) has not done that himself. But let's get to the final part of this episode, which is the questions. And do we have a new one coming up, Simon? Uh, We do. Um, It's one which, especially over the last uh, weekend or so... um, At time of recording. At time of recording, has become more pertinent. Um, The question involves uh, the use of blood um, within wrestling. And WWE which, as we know, is the most referred to and biggest show in town, uh, has, for the, low, for the large part, eschewed, uh, eschewed. definitely blading. Yes. Oh, eschewed, sorry. Eschewed blood, um, well, intentional blood, well, mostly blading, for, oh, God, going on at least five, last, five or so I years. I think the last time they allowed it was during the Shawn Michaels-Chris Jericho feud. Mm. And that would have been about 20... 2008 time. I'm not sure about using the word aloud because I don't know about the Lesnar Orton elbows. Well, that's that's hard way. That was that's a different situation. Yeah, but just where it's it part of the everyday thing, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I personally think, but but, planned... but that was also planned as a ways to bring about the end of the match to protect someone. Not yeah. it being a, a a part of the match going forward. Mm. Whereas uh, at AEW, AEW's Double or Nothing pay-per-view, uh, in the Cody Dustin match, um, there is a... Lot. Lot of blood. Um, Some say too much. Some say any is too much. Where do you sit? I get more uncomfortable, as, as with many things, as I've got older. Um... And I don't think that's just becoming an old fart. I think it's just you become as, as the culture has shifted. Not to say that they, there wasn't always concern about it. And like I've always said, with blood, I was shocked. Wrestling became more real to me when I found out about the blood because my understanding as a kid had always been that they get a little blood capsule, yeah, and they basically smash it against their forehead at some point, and that that's how the blood's done. I think for backstage segments and the like, that's how they will do it. But then watching the Secrets of the Ring, Secrets of Wrestling documentary with the masked wrestlers and the stunt granny, infamously, that was where I learned about blading. And even then I was kind of horrified because I'm not, you know, I'm a, I'm a relatively squeamish person. Mm. Um, I don't faint at the sight of blood, but I don't feel comfortable around it, you know. Um, knowing that that... What that is essentially is is self mutilation. It's self harm. Obviously, yeah. wrestling is self harm, but 
then you look at people like Abdullah the Butcher and the Sheik and Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and what yeah. their foreheads look like to this day. Um, well, you it, say it wrestling you... self-harm, but bumps and moves, for the most part, are like trained, practice, repeated, yeah. ad nauseum, yeah. and there's a process to how to take it safely. And say what you will, um, but these guys aren't surgeons. And at the end of the day, whenever you take a blade to a human, anything could happen. Even though they're superficial cuts for the most part, there have been very yeah. few that have gone really... Obviously, Mass Transit, the infamous example, uh, Eddie Guerrero against JBL. At, that was uh, Judgment Day. I think he just caught a, um, a vein. A vein. Um, Sick Nick Mondo drinking his own blood, I think, at one point. Um, it's interesting that it's gradually started crawling its way back into wrestling in some sort of mainstream. Jimmy Havoc uses it quite a lot, I believe, him and Paul Robinson in progress. One thing I hope, and I would assume they are, because every I, I consider progress to be a responsible promotion, I consider AEW to be a responsible promotion, testing is done well ahead of time to prevent any kind of you know the infamous situation where uh, Bob Orton Jr. bled in a yeah. match involving uh, The Undertaker and Randy Orton and it was found out after the fact that he had, that hepatitis. He had hepatitis. I you imagine... have to, have to avoid that. Yeah. And I would assume both Dustin and Cody will have been tested well ahead of time. Uh, and when there are hard way cuts, they do try and, you know, prevent the... the the cut mm. from getting too bad without it being too much of a detriment to the match of course there are some bad examples like when uh, Samoa Joe and Finn Balor had their match in was it the one before Wrestlemania it was the one before Wrestlemania because Shane McMahon's kids were there in the front row yes uh, I, I was at that match yes. I was at that match live actually and um, yeah it just disrupted the flow entirely and no pun intended <laughs> well if it disrupted the flow entirely maybe the flow of the match would have been yeah. better yeah but yeah, it just took something that was really hot and visceral and just like killed it completely. It took something natural. Wrestling again, has you can adapt to that. Like uh, when um, CM Punk has his hair versus hair match against Ray, his hair versus mask match against Ray Mysterio, and he cut, gets bled quite badly, and they yeah. just had to stop the match. And you could see Punk's frustration when they actually restarted it. He took that out by immediately attacking and beating up Ray really badly for a short yeah. spurt of time to essentially uh, make up for the lack of time for the less time to have they, this much damage onto Ray and yeah. also to, to to show how angered he is at being cut and you know obviously big, a big risk mm. then when you're doing the, the head shaving afterwards depending on the location of the cut true um ah, I, I was just thinking though back at the uh Joe Bala match I think I did chant let them bleed I think I was one of those people mm. Obviously, I was there live. I wasn't there televised, so I didn't see the full angles of the cut yeah. and stuff. I was lost in the moment. And wrestling is part improvisation, and yeah. you do have to lose yourself in the moment, yeah. sometimes to an extent. If you're playing, uh, let me tell you something, bingo, there's another one for you. Mm -hmm. However, you're absolutely right, and I, like you, have changed my um, attitude towards blood as I've got older. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's their job. Like, yeah. no one deserves to die doing their job. Well, you know, again, you cut yourself slightly on your forehead with a razor blade. It looks bad, but it's not life-threatening. 
you cut yourself on your wrist accidentally with it taped to it or something like that, you know, you do something like that, then that's sure a problem. Yes. To be honest, I've never, I, I don't know of anyone that's died from uh, blood loss in wrestling. No. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about things that are dangerous, being cut on your forehead slightly is different to taking a, a, a top rope pile driver as some of these people will take in wrestling. Absolutely. And that's another part of it, the whole worry that we have and we've reflected on constantly with this, that to be these great matches, they kind of have to push themselves beyond what maybe is sensible. They, they you know, with the head drops in the All Japan matches as they become increasingly popular, with the, 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 the ladder-based stunts that become increasingly popular after what Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon did at WrestleMania 10. And possibly with uh, the freeform status that some promotions, uh, yeah. actually a lot of promotions, were giving people yeah. around the time that we're currently reviewing, yeah, of course. people also, therefore have the platform to push themselves beyond yeah. and their about, and their opponents' physical limitations. Yeah, and if you're talking about one of the most uh, culturally significant moments in wrestling history... It's the sight of a bloodied Stone Cold Steve Austin in the sharpshooter. And if there wasn't blood in that shot, would it have been as memorable? No. Would Stone Cold be the big star that he is today if he hadn't bled in that match? We don't know. I think he probably would have because not many people actually watch that match. It's everything that the Stone Cold Steve Austin character became afterwards. But then does he provoke those reactions from the crowd? Do they warm to him as much as they did after that match because of it it's like how people became more endeared to Mick Foley after he took those Hell in the Cell bumps you know does Becky Lynch's the man uh, thing work as well without the bloody like smirk on top of the stairs yeah yeah what I don't want to see is blood making a comeback to where it was after from like 99 to 2005 or so, where Triple mm. H is bleeding in every Hell in a Cell match. Uh, Shawn Michaels' face is covered in blood at WrestleMania 20. There's the New Year's Revolution uh, rated RKO versus DX tag match with Orton's horrific blood loss. I don't see that that's a match that needs that. I, like Cody Dustin is in theory maybe a match that's going to be remembered forever because it's like it was you know, and it is a match that we will cover in this now. Uh, as of recording, it has recently been given five stars by Dave Meltzer, so we'll re- return to this argument. Interestingly, at the point probably when AEW is now a thing on TV. And obviously Dustin has that history, and it kind of works as well, because their father was infamous for, you know, blood red equals money green. But that yeah. attitude has got to go away as much as possible anyway. Because I don't want wrestlers feeling like the only way that people will care about this match is if we do bleed. Because the WWE did have to recondition fans because they expected a steel cage match, a Hell in a Cell match, there's going to be blood. Yeah. And they don't want that anymore. And when they do do it now, it was in the Brock Lesnar-Roman Reigns, both of those matches at WrestleMania, Brock Lesnar in the first one, Roman Reigns in the second one. I don't know if Roman Reigns' one was accidental or not, but it was a gusher that he bled. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Brock Lesnar versus Orton, the Hardway elbows. Yeah, there's that's pretty much it, really. In terms that's, of like, that's recent a, examples, yeah, to be honest, again, self mutilation is a safe way of doing it rather than just taking repeated elbows to the head. And I think Randy Orton was seriously concussed from that. Yeah, well, he, who wouldn't be in like taking those like hits from Lesnar? So it's not. It doesn't look like it's going to go away like I thought it would at one point. Well, wrestling's cyclical. I don't buy into that entirely. Um, I think that's an excuse people make when they're doing bad business when they've got a bad pro when they've got a bad product. 
So uh, I don't entirely buy that. You view, um, see, see, so you view that as a cop out, and your problem with blood possibly is that you could see people using blood as a cop out to mask yeah, yeah, poor uh, wrestling. Using blood, yeah, using blood to disguise a great match, you know, because Masara and Kawada don't bleed. Don't Flair and it. Steamboat in those matches didn't bleed. No. Flair would go to blood when he could. Yeah. Or when you, he, you, you know, when he sneezed sometime. He, sometime I he don't think there was blood in them Flair Funk's I Quit match. Are there, are there, is there blood in any of our top five? There's, no. Intentional? No. There's no blood in any of those, I don't believe. And I don't think there's any blood in my top ten. I did give five stars to the, the Magnum Tully match and that would be in my top 10 yeah uh, and to be to be honest i viewed it more as like a visceral sort of ang- yeah. angly fighty thing than a, ma- a traditional match and that's why i didn't give it five stars but so i enjoyed my... it but i did enjoy it yeah. and the blood helped the enjoyment of that so my requirements would be basically for me to feel comfortable about blood being returned to wrestling would be one of several things one it is used at maximum once maybe twice a year at maximum I think number one should be testing. If you're doing well, like yeah, I'm not doing that priority. levels of priority. I'm just doing them off okay, the top of my head. Okay. Number, you know, beforehand, you don't bleed until everyone's tested thoroughly. Yeah. Uh, the the for all, including the ref because you never know what might happen with that. I don't I don't know how it all mm. works, but you know, I mean th- that was how that was how ridiculous it got to the point that they even had there was one Hell in the Cell match where they had Tim White bleed. Yeah, and he bled a lot as well. And they had the Undertaker Brock Lesnar one where the Undertaker just bled one of the worst. Heyman bleeds seen. in that, and Heyman bleeds in that. Yeah, yeah. Do you need uh, it? I think that the, within what they were trying to tell about how how you know barbaric the Hell in a Cell is, I get why they did it, but it's an old fashioned attitude. Yeah, just like how it was an old fashioned attitude to think that women's wrestling matches were a novelty, like midget matches. You know, things sure. change thankfully over time. Things evolve. And I don't think that I needed blood to come back. But if it is going to come back, and I understand why it is. But that's not going to say I'm not going to become increasingly uneasy as I watch it, you know? That, and that and that's on me. And I yeah. may turn off. And that may happen to a lot of viewers on, on in TV as well. Because it is at the end of the day. If someone in real life is cutting themselves, that's a bad sign. This is like yes. one of the few things in life where someone cutting themselves is seen as... A quirk of the industry, but to take it to other forms of entertainment, some of the stuff we've seen in like Game of Thrones in terms of like deaths and like the Saw movies and gore and stuff like that. Yeah, but gore, there is a growing gore's been in movies and everything since the well, as a thing since the eighties with the video nasties culture, but yeah. it was there beforehand. There's yeah, but in terms of like books of you know, you know, Psycho and all that sort of thing. What's you know, allowed the to be Hammer like... horror, the Hammer horror films of the fifties and sixties? They made the whole thing about doing those stories again, but in color, so you saw the blood and everything. But in terms of like general television uh, and the growing de- desensitization to like mass uh, appeal things, such as Game of Thrones, um, such as Breaking Bad, are the Breaking Bad a little bit less so? Well, yeah, I mean, again, there's still those barriers, but like. To give you a good example, I think, not to say yours weren't good examples, um, in Avengers Endgame, when Thanos gets his head lopped off, I'm not going to say spoiler warnings, it's been, you know, how You've had your chance. There's like, in the, the second time you see it, because you see it twice, 
You see spurts of blood coming from his neck wound briefly. Yeah. Which is biologically correct. You would see that. So well, we don't know what the what planet Titans from, what, what it's what be, Titans yeah. bleed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. Um. So yeah, that's what that's like. It's a. I'm trepidatious about its reintroduction, but I can't deny its dramatic effect. And if they didn't bleed, would it be considered one of the best matches of the year? And would Dave Meltzer have given it five stars? He won't, you know, that's up to him. And I don't even think he would know consciously or not if that really affected him or not. Because he, uh, to the best of my knowledge, none of the matches he's given six stars have had blood in them. So Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean it's a barrier, though. Maybe it's just a accoutrement on the side. Accoutrement. Accoutrement. There we go. So, so. that has been another hearty discussion. On our debrief, our fifth debrief, the fourth one that you've been able to listen to, but the fifth between myself and Simon. Simon, if people want to debrief you further on your list, on your opinions, on your um, nature in general, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Uh, free for the minimum number of times I've um, ch- had a soft, gushing tone in my voice as I've said the words Misawa versus Kawada in this episode. Mm, very nice. Very nice. My name is Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for artery, N for Nick. That's my email address if you put at gmail.com at the end of it. That's my Twitter handle, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, all those good things. And you can get in touch with me that way. Or just follow me and not bother me in the slightest. But for our next episode, our 51st match, we are yet again back in All Japan. And yet again, Mitsuhara Masawa is facing off against one of his great rivals. But it's not Toshiaki Kawada. It's not Kenta Kabashi. For the first and only time in this list, we are going to see that fourth pillar of heaven, Akira Tawe, in singles action. As he faces off against Mitsuhara Masawa... At the 1995 Champions Carnival Tournament Final. I'm about to see those gorgeous red shorts. Trunks. Not shorts. Yeah. Uh, but until then, my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time. It's